First Corinthians chapter 10. All right. So in our outline, what we did on Tuesday as we began to gather the closing thoughts of the apostles, um, the apostles meditation to the church at Corinth as to how we should be in the world. Uh, I entitled that in your outline. Our freedom is aimed at your salvation. And those were two important categories that I wanted you to keep in mind as we work through the idea of, uh, of Paul's exhortation to them, our freedom, the idea of the believer having freedom, but that freedom is to a purpose. It has an aim in view. Our freedom is for your or their salvation. That would infer or imply um, that you and I are actually saved in order to see other people saved. You would agree with that. Our freedom then, our liberty, our, um, our right to roam as sons and daughters of God on this planet, our access to all of God's blessings and his resources to us as children of the living God, our capacity in Christ to be exhibitional as children of God. That's what the idea of freedom would infer for us. We are free um, in our liberty in Christ. We are called in our freedom to live a certain way, to express and to demonstrate being children of the living God with the goal of our freedom impacting others for Christ. We are not free to simply meander and to roam about or to please ourselves as Paul is going to narrow the focus of his intentionality down to a very uh, concise summation for us in verse uh, 33. Uh, and and it, it will be nice when we uh, tap into verse one of chapter 11, that will cap cap capsulize the essence of what he's saying. But what we did on Tuesday, we looked at the uh, the real sphere of our influence in the lives of men and women is in the area of conscience. That's what we looked at under point number one. I don't want to develop that too much more, but it's important to know that the real influence that any of us have with anyone is at the level of conscience, not merely at the level of appearance or at the level of performance, but at the level of conscience, because the conscious is where you and I really truly exist. In the mind, in the heart, in the awareness, the, the conscience is that dimension or realm of your, your uh, mental state by which you and I know, soon we know, is the Greek term, and in the English is conscience. Science is always that of knowing. Conscience means to know with. Uh, an ex- uh, kind of a strange uh, preposition and noun, but it's, it's important. Everyone has a conscience, don't they? And you and I can affect people's conscience, good or bad. And what the apostle had done was told the church at Corinth, uh, you have to be careful that your liberty is not used to affect people's conscience the wrong way. At the same time, make sure that You don't allow people to invade your conscience in a way that you lose your liberty in Christ. That's attention. This is what he was dealing with. This is what he plainly said over in verse 29. Conscious, I say, not your own, but the other person. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? And again, we don't want to unpack that because it took a little time. All Paul meant for the believers to understand that 
You don't allow any other dominion, any other authority, any other kratos, any other exousia to um, have control over your conscience beyond God. That does take a discipline in itself. We could go into that. Remember, I'll be with you for about an hour and then we're going to go into Q&A. So any of these propositions, you can pull them up and you can be ready to talk about it. But how disciplined must we be to be able to walk with God at a level that we don't allow other people to actually hijack our conscience and bring us into subjection to their authority? What a proposition. Now, you can hold on to that. Because that's where we're going in our world. What do you mean, Pastor? Our world is poised in position and strategically setting itself up to have absolute control over your conscience. And so it's important for you to know that as we're talking about the conscience, that dimension, that realm of self-awareness, that that place where you and I can index who we are. I am Jesse. You are you. And God is who he is. I am that I am, as he told Moses to tell Pharaoh. I know who I am. And we should know who we are and we should know who we are in Christ. How how perilous would it be for us to discover that someone else besides God can actually hijack our conscience? How perilous would it be that we could discover that one day we were really not operating out of our own central grounding as a person, but we were simply pawns being governed by somebody else's conscience. Am I making some sense to you? Right. And and you should be thinking that through because this is really about how to make sure that you are operating with a helmet of salvation on your head and your mind to guard against the invasion of alien thoughts that can take you captive and employ you for their own service. Does that make sense, right? So when Paul is talking about the conscience, this is not a small thing. This is something that you and I want to be clear that we're operating out of. And it would be equivalent to being um, properly illuminated or the other way to put it is awake enough to know what's going on in the subjective personal me sphere and dimension and what's going on in my world. Because if I can actually properly identify what is objective from that which is subjective, then I can be more careful not to fall prey to deception. I'm making some sense, right? Right. And, and actually, you, you know that I'm functioning now with the term truth, <clears throat> Because aletheia is truth, and truth is always the unveiling of what really is in the sight of God. This is why Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he wasn't merely talking about his personal being, but the total, the totality of his expression as the revelation of the invisible God. He came to lead us up out of the darkness of a failure to be able to recognize who we are in God. So that we could walk in the autonomy <clears throat> and in the freedom and in the authority, in the dignity, and in the identity as sons and daughters of God for which he has called us. So I want to kind of go into something that I think is extremely encouraging on Paul's part, but I do want you to capture freedom, freedom, freedom. Freedom is that gift that God gives you and I to bring us out of the prison house of the Egyptian system and bring us into the kingdom of the living God. John chapter eight thirty one. If you continue in my word, then you shall know the truth. <clears throat> You will be my disciples and you shall know the truth and the truth shall what? Set you free. So people of God are destined to freedom because freedom is the only way you and I can be authentic. 
<clears throat> you and I cannot be authentic when we are brought into captivity by someone else's will outside of God. The best we can do when we're in captivity by somebody else's will is to e- either cower in a kind of capitulation and um, exportation of our essence to somebody else that becomes what would be called a usurpating um, slavery. And then you're just doing somebody else's will. But when God is your master and you're his slave, you're actually operating out of a, an authentic union between you and him. It's organic. It's real. It's genuine as a son of the living God. So you are happy being freely God's slave. Does that make some sense? Right. Okay. So this is where Paul is in the idea of the conscious under point number one. We act for their conscious sake. That means I'm going to be thinking about to what extent can my freedom, does my freedom have the capacity to influence other people? It has a lot, doesn't it? And it could be vice versa as well. This is what we're dealing with. So under point number one, our freedom is to be what? Harmless. Our freedom is also to be what? That's right. We've dealt with that. I won't go any further. It could be many other things, but what it is not to be is harmful and what it should be is helpful. This is where we're going to pick up under our third point. Point number two, the question, the proposition is God's glory is our what? It's our COP. And for those of you who are new, we call this our chief chief operating principle or our chief organizing principle. This has to do with knowing how to prioritize God's will in your life in every aspect of it. Not always easily done, but that's the objective. And so if you look again at verse 31, notice what Paul says here. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the what? All right. So that's going to be a task, isn't it? Because everything is not automatically identifiable in your life or mine as being aimed at God's glory. Not everything we choose to do is so obviously, okay. this is the will of God. So you've got to really labor to aspire to know how to prioritize your 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 calling and your your discernment and your 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 aims and objectives in a way that whatever you do in word or deed or like 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 Paul said in the book of Colossians, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus for the glory of God. Hard, but that's the call. This is why Jesus said in John in Matthew chapter six, verse 11, when you pray, pray like this, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That is called a hierarchical prayer. A hierarchical prayer means we start with God the Father. He is the essence of all things. And then we proceed from him in his essence to him in terms of his will. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so it becomes a hierarchical principle that what I do, I do for the glory of God. Could go into that further, but certainly this is the the um, sort of axiom or primary objective for which Paul is calling the church at Corinth to walk. Under that, I told you two subpoints. The question is always um, uh, the issue, am I free in what I'm doing or am I being compelled by, again, artificial forces, unjust forces? Am I being pressured to do something um, out of a, a wrong motive or a wrong, a wrong premise? And subpoint B, does this witness? That's always going to be the case. Does, does what I do witness 
I'm talking in the positive sense witness. Does it does it bring to bear on other people's conscience uh, something about the kingdom of God in, in, in whatever application that might be? We'll leave that alone again. This is Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Um, you are the light of the world. You are a city set on the hill that cannot be hid. So if that is the case, if that is our indicative, then what we are doing as lights of the world, we are shining, are we not? The issue is in what direction and how. To what degree are we shining in a way to cast light on the pathway so people can get on it? I talked about that, right? If you are the light of the world, really what you are doing is illuminating a pathway for people to get on that path that you're already on. That's exactly what Jesus meant when he says, I am the light of the world, therefore what? Follow me, right? See, so following is a presupposition that there's a path and that there's light on that path. And of course, you're gonna see Paul plainly say, follow me as I follow Christ. And so it would be the same thing with us, follow me as I follow Christ, right? And really, it's gonna work itself out that way if you and I be become what we are simply called to be. Now, let's look at th- uh, point number three. And this is kind of where we picked up or uh, left off on, on uh, Tuesday. And I want to pick up here briefly and talk about the, uh, the domain, the sphere of this sort of axiom of whatever we do, let's do it to the glory of God. Point number three, I, I framed it this way. Consider anger, blindness, and what? All right, so I, I do want to set these up as categories because they will be the contextual hurdle that the church at Corinth is being called and conscious to think through as they are admonished not to be a stumbling block to anyone. The first one will be anger. The second one will be blindness. I'll make an argument for that briefly. And then again, if you want to, uh, the third one is going to be weakness. Um, if you want to, you can um, you can raise that up as a question when we are done. So the reason why these would be the things that you and I consider is because these will be the hallmark characteristics that emerge out of human beings and societies, depending on where they are spiritually. Right. So the relationship that you and I have with people uh, and in this context, Paul would categorize those people over in uh, in verse 32. He would categorize them as making no offense, giving no offense, neither to the first, the who? The Jew, and then to the Gentile, and then to the church of God. So I have obviously uh, attributed to the Jews a fundamental uh, pathology called anger. And I'm going to prove that in a moment. Okay, to the Jews. And then I've given a certain pathology pathology to the Gentiles called what? Blindness. And I can justify that, too. And then we're going to kind of we're going to kind of build on that. And then I have also given a, a pathology to the church. What am I giving it? Weakness. And the reason why is because all these are contextual particularly the issue of the church, because Paul will constantly remind the church at Corinth that his fundamental problem is weakness. Now, when we talk about anger, blindness and weakness right now, these are these are contextual descriptions of 
the general state of people in, in, in the mind of Paul as he's dealing with the church in the world, you can generalize them across the board. I don't care uh, that you do. We'll be able to see something of that nature, but understand they take on differentiation depending on who you are dealing with. Not everybody is dominated by anger. Not everybody is dominated by blindness and not everybody is dominated by weakness. That would be a fallacy to This is a fundamental point you and I want to be careful about using whenever we use words. And this would be the idea of overgeneralizing terms. Everybody's weak. No, because if everybody was weak, then no one would be strong. So you have to be careful about overgeneralizing terms. Am I making some sense? Everybody's blind. No, no. If everybody was blind, your proposition would be faulty on a subjective level because you wouldn't see that they're blind because you'd be blind, too. That makes some sense. Right. Right. And, and not everybody is angry in the sense of the only dominant characteristic manifesting itself is angry. We could say that everyone has some anger. Everyone has some blindness. Everyone has some weakness. Right. But obviously everyone has other attributes, characteristics, positive or negative. But in the, in the, for the purpose of our context, here's what you can know. The Apostle Paul is very much aware that the church of the living God in the first century had to deal with these three categories. One, angry Jewish brethren. How do we know that? He was one. He was one. In his zeal, he persecuted the saints to death. And it was rooted in anger, was it not? Absolutely. A self-righteous anger that was groundless in its prosecution of the lambs of God. Paul knew the uh, unrighteous anger that existed among the Jewish brethren. First Timothy chapter, first Thessalonians 2, verse 15 and 16. I'll use this as a primer text. We can talk about it if you want to. But the Jews had this problem, obviously Gentiles too, but the Jews had this problem and Paul knew this as well. He said, now start back at verse 14 because we probably don't have the context. Right. For ye brethren, you became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. He's talking to the church at Thessalonica, very, a very notable church. For you also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the what? So he's making a parallelism between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers, right? And by the way, those two categories make up what is called the church of God. If we have the Jews and we have the Gentiles, what is the church of God but regenerate Jews and Gentiles, right? It's not some other species. It is the combination of both in a state of regeneration. That makes sense, right? Okay, so it's important to see. Now, notice what he says. Just like the brethren who are Christians in Judea suffer at the hands of the Jews, so do you, do you suffer at the hands of Gentiles. What do they suffer? The unrighteous anger of Jewish men and Gentile men who, by nature, hate Christ. That makes sense. All right. So I'm just kind of laying that down. And what I want you to think about with that is what Paul is about to say here in a moment. That's the product. That's the material. That's our ministry. That's our targeted ministry. Angry people are our targeted ministry. Now, I just leave it there. We'll go back. We'll get there. That's uh, under point number three, sub point A. Um, uh, Jewish hostility to Christ. Look at what he says in verse 15. In 1 Thessalonians 2.15, who both did what? 
killed the Lord Jesus. Stop. This is going again back to Matthew 5. Remember what Jesus says? You have heard that it has been stated, thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder. But I say unto you, whosoever is angry with his brother in his heart has already committed murder. You know what Jesus said? Who was he speaking to? Jewish people. What was he prophesying? His own death. By whom? Them. Does that make some sense? Right. It's important for you to capture that. Who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not what? And they do not what? And they do not what? That's where I want to go with Paul's Magna Carta and where I want to challenge you in the Q&A. Because Paul, for me, says something that is really profound and we got to wrestle with it. And what he said is his own Jewish brethren under the present uh, under the present influence as he as they persecute Christians and persecute all men. This is what he said. They they persecute us and they please not God and are contrary to all men. They're not pleasing to God. They're just not pleasing to God. We want to come back because that's really going to be the question I want to pose to you. That's given to us over in verse 33. Go back to our text. This is where I want us to really work. I should I should go there, but I'm going to raise the question here. Notice what Paul says. Give no offense either to the Jew or the Gentile or to the church of God, even as. Now, this is what is called a parallel clause. What he is asking you to do is be like him. Now, here's what he says, which I want us to struggle with. Here's what he says. Even as I please all men. Do you see it? Even as I please all men, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. So this is going to be the question that I'm going to lift up for us to work through. What does it mean for us to be pleasing to all men? I want us to wrestle with that. I just gave you first Thessalonians chapter two. I said the Jews were not pleasing to God. That's what Paul said. Right. So we, we can contextualize the grounds upon which they are not pleasing to God. But what Paul is saying is, if you're going to follow my motto, and that's what he says in chapter 11, verse one, be followers of me as I'm followers of Christ. Hey, by the way, I am poised and purposed to please all men. All right. And I want to show you the the nuanced nature of that proposition. Okay, when we get there, I want to ask you the question, what does it mean to please? And how on earth could we ever in whatever way possible manage to execute that gargantuan objective to be pleasing to all men? We'll wrestle with that under point number uh, sub point B under point number three. Consider blindness. The thing that the Bible will lay out concerning the general condition of mankind in its unsafe state is that we are spiritually what? We're spiritually blind. And we saw this. We want to look at this briefly again, Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. And then I'm going to appeal to you once we deal with the last one. What does it feel like to have a person in your life that you may be on assignment towards with who is both angry and blind? See how important it is to make it a kind of subjective missional statement and it's not staying abstract. Right. And, and I don't think this is too big of a question to ask. This I say, therefore, in testifying the Lord that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. In fact, what he's saying is don't walk like you used to walk because we're Gentiles. And here's what he's saying. We used to walk like in the vanity of our mind. Do you guys see that? 
He says, don't walk as other Gentiles walk in the what of their mind? Emptiness. Emptiness. In the futility. In the uh, void of any kind of real substantive understanding. To be vain in our mind means to be dislodged from concrete reality according to God. When a person is vain, what it means is that they have chosen the empty, fleeting, ethereal things of this life that only take on a form of substance, but they are superficial and they waste away. Does that make some sense? I'll say it again just in case you guys struggle with these ideas. When a person is vain, and we use that as a colloquialism with people that we'll look at and we'll go, that person's superficial, won't we say that? Right? Um, long, long ago, this is dating some of us who are old, Britney Spears had a song called what? Material Girl. Or was that? That was her daughter. That was her, that was her mama, Madonna. Right. I, I swore Britney was her daughter. Um, but the point, the point being is that for me, I remember that epic, both Madonna and Britney. I remember that epic. I remember how um, uh, remarkable it was to me that they would take on such a braggadocious position of superficiality. I remember how remarkable that was to me because that was like one of the harbingers and beginnings of the female self-prostitution at the burlesque level that was so overt that it was hard to believe that no one was really calling it out. Does that make some sense? Because many of us were teenagers at that time and, and it was just bizarre. We knew it was in playbook and hustling and all that. We knew it was behind the doors. As I said, that stuff should be, if it's going to exist at all, exist in the dark, not in the light. I'll talk about why that's the case in a moment. But when it emerged, it became for me, that is a legitimate song, material girl, material girl. What Madonna was saying is the only thing that matters is your material fulfillment, how you look, how you feel, what you can do, what you can have, how absolutely contrary to the ethics and morals and spiritual hierarchy of the things of God. Does that make sense? Right. And, 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 and just in case you don't know that, that particular event, like many today, were the beginnings of the complete subversion of Western culture. Because if you can take her back then, 50 years ago, or 40 years ago, I'm sure it's now at least 40 or 50, and, and think about all the daughters that she replicated up to now, all the daughters she's replicated up to now, and how they behave, you could see how a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Well, that's where we are today. Um, the enemy always loves to keep you only seeing the seed and never the harvest. The enemy only, he loves to keep you only seeing the seed because in the seed, you know, there's nothing harmless in the seed. It appears to be small and, and non-intrusive and, and non-evasive. But if you could look at it in its full blown manifestation, you would see the kind of monster it would be, wouldn't you? That's how the enemy works with propositions and ideas. But this is what Paul says. You and I need to be careful not to do walk. Don't have your conduct in the vanity of your mind. Verse 18. Verse 18. Having the understanding what? Right. So this this is about the kind of um, mechanistic thinking process 
that unsaved people operate out of where they're not capable of putting together reality in a fashion by which they can say they have understanding. And to have understanding is to see things the way God sees them. Like, 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 like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we would have to really unpack that a little bit more because it's not merely the, the trepidation of your emotional makeup. The fear means the reverence, the commitment to the high honor of and submission to with a sense of not wanting to make any kind of infractions against God. When you and I fear God, we hold him at the highest level of reverence. He becomes for us the kind of restraint system that will keep us from going off the rails too bad, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Right, so that kind of restraint system of the Imago Dei and his high view, a high view of him and the qualitative attributes of God that impact our life are going to keep us from walking in that vanity. It's going to restrain us from engaging in unbridled lust. It's going to retrieve us when we do step out and his admonition rebukes us and brings us back in, right? Because the commandments of the Lord are light, right? His instructions are able to tell you when you're wrong, reproof and correction. That's a relationship with God. That's how you stay on, on, on the path. And so having the understanding darkened means that the Gentiles are operating kind of in a uh, obscure vacuum of really deep down inside, not really knowing what they're doing. This is really true. This is what we talked about on Sunday. Father, forgive them for they what? There are levels of demonic mystery controlling the humanity for which they actually are not um, sufficiently aware that they are being governed by. That makes sense, all the sense in the world. So get a hold of that. There are certain people in high powers and positions knowing that they are negotiating with the devil. That's, that's not a problem. We know that, right? The Bible is clear about that. We would have never had an event in Genesis or in Matthew 4. If God didn't mean for us to know that human beings can know that they have a cognitive, intellectual awareness of the most maniacal entity in the universe. We would have never been given Genesis 3, 1 through 6 or Matthew 4 if God didn't mean for us to know that men do know that there's a devil. Did that make some sense? The first Adam and his wife knew it. The last Adam knew it. So humanity knows that there is a maniacal, diabolical entity out there that seeks to control everybody and drive them into the tyrannical will and agenda of, of his purposes. Having the dark, uh, understanding darkened, being alienated from the what? Life of God. So that, that deep down in the soul of the unsaved person, they know they're disconnected from something. Now just leave that with you. Please understand. What we're doing here is actually framing the kind of psychology of the unsaved person. When I mean, what I mean by psychology is the way of their inward thinking. The way of their inward thinking, if we were to go all the way back to the beginning of it, is that they operate in vanity. They are engaging in a lack of understanding. There is an obscurity there that is a consequence of being disconnected from God. And you and I could attach to that horrible condition because many of us knew it before we were saved. We knew that we were disconnected from something, right? <clears throat> so, so this is where um, a godless, phobic tyranny also dominated us because the wicked operate out of a fear too. 
The believer operates out of the fear of God. The believer, the wicked operate out of a fear of not having God. So there's a fear there too. Why? Because there's a consequence to life in rebellion against God, right? That's, they lived all their lifetime subject to the fear of death, Hebrews chapter two. Did that make some sense? <clears throat> so the unbeliever also has a, a, a tyranny of the unknown, and that is what happens when you die. So you can imagine the uh, pathological uh, uh, choices they make in their unsaved state, being as we just learned, blind. And that word blindness also means hardened in your heart, uh, blinded, hardened in your heart, uh, lacking understanding, being alienated from God. You can imagine what kind of gymnastics the unbeliever goes through trying to rationalize his life without God, can you? But you can also know that he fails, she failed, they fail to the extent that their neurological makeup is taxed with levels of of anxiety and depression that results in anger. Did that come home? Right. So I'm unsaved. I don't know God. I'm, 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 I'm desperately wrapped up in, in conundrums. I can't solve problems and I'm engaging in this scam and that scam. This thing, that thing is never working out. I thought my buddy was for me. He ripped me off. I mean, you know, all kind of traps are going on and failures are happening and it's making you go from bad to worse on an emotional and psychological level. So some people get depressed, negative sequence and go into self-harm. Other people get depressed and their negative sequencing moves them to hurt other people. That's an angry world. Boy, I'm working to unpack this part for you guys. I'm like, man, why am I working so hard? Being alienated from the life of God through the what that's in them? Ignorance. There it is. That's the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. That's a horrible condition for the unsaved person to be in. By the way, Paul is going to tell us in a moment, you and I need to be somewhat sympathetic about that. We need to be somewhat sympathetic about that. We should not be casual or blase about that predicament because that predicament is the soon as you put a face on it, like your son or your daughter or your niece or your nephew, then it's a call for being sympathetic. Is it not? All right. Okay. Um, Going back then, because I want to move on to the question uh, that I kind of want to unpack as well. Here's the third one. So we're to be they were supposed to be concerned about the ever relentless prosecution of the Jewish anger. Then they were to be concerned about Gentile blindness because that's dangerous, too, because blindness is foolishness. And when you're a fool, uh, (laughs) you're a dangerous person is what Jesus said in Matthew 15, 14. Listen to it. Matthew 15, 14. You guys have heard it before. Let the blind lead the blind. Right. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both of them shall do what? Right. So you you can imagine God depicting the world without God as a bunch of blind leaders leading blind people. Right. No wonder they cussing and fussing and angry and having fits and everything because they're blind and don't want to admit they're blind. That makes sense. Right. And, And you and I used to be that way. Now, here comes a category that actually is to be understood inside the church. So point C, Christian weakness to the spirit. And, and the way I'm, I'm po- pro, uh, uh, posturing that Christian weakness to the what? To the spirit. And, and the way I'm framing that propositionally is this way. The Christian and, and, and Paul's going to deal with this 
in a very what we would call uh, equivocating way. And I want to read through the verses around this because I want you to get this. I want you and I to be able to handle weakness appropriately here, okay? And then we'll raise the question, what does it mean to please all men? The idea of weakness is the idea of the believer not doing what God is calling him to do in order to become what God has called them to be. The idea of weakness, osteneo, it's a negative preposition with a noun. Steneo is what we have in our uh, Latin to our English, the word steroid. The word steroid is equivalent to the word strengthened or might or strong. Did that make some sense? I've taught us this for a long time. This is where in our physical world, I can go down so many rabbit holes now because there's so many things going on. But this happened way back in the 50s and the 60s when in the uh, biomedical world of, um, of technology, I'll use that as a general, uh, generic term, they started experimenting with giving uh, the citizens steroids. Steroids started initially as a medical assignment, and obviously so, for people who had injuries in their muscles and limbs and stuff. And so if you can have a synthetic steroid given, you can, you can increase and uh, shorten the time of healing with steroids. Does that make sense? Steroids have a powerful mechanistic uh, uh, metabolic uh, benefit to your body uh, as long as you don't overdo it and as long as you don't take too much of it or if you, as long as you don't take the unlicensed stuff that turns you into the Hulk which is what happened in, uh, in sports. You know, you, you take a little <laughs> young man, 15 years old, 135 pounds, he's 5'9", and in two years, he's 6'1", you know, 215, 20 pounds. You go, how did he go from that to that? Steroids. I'm not going to stay there long. Your whole athletic world has been an experimentation for 50 or 60 years of the use of synthetic steroids turning normal young men into beasts. Does that make sense? And what we have always seen in that synthetic experimentation in the realm of sports is how that those young men and some young women who cheat and do it as well, because they have. I I raised my kids in sports, uh, basketball, but largely track. We did a lot of track. Women are doing doping in track. Ain't no doubt about it. And uh, what it will do is it will not stop at your physiology. It will impact your neurological makeup. It will get you at the uh, at the mental cognitive level. It will impact your hormonal system. And this is why we have gradually moved into the androgynous, homosexual, lesbian, trans dimension right now. Can you see that trajectory? I don't want to be here long. Can you see that? It started way back there. It started way back there. Right. So look at the enemy. Doesn't he know how to take something that is really designed by God to call you an eye to and then to materialize it in a physical dimension to create strong men and women in the physical sense? And yet God is calling you and I to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Right. In order that we might stand against the wiles of the devil. Right. So for us, it's a spiritual dimension in the which you and I are called to be strong, having a kind of steroid influence, which is a result of union and fellowship with God by his spirit, where we become warriors and overcomers. That makes sense, right? But we see it in the physical dimension and we see the calamity that it brings about in its excess. Well, we have moved exponentially to a greater, more diabolical level 
beyond steroids. Because again, the vanity of the mind of the lost man is, let's not stop with sports. Since we're modifying the body now, let's not stop with sports. Let's move into other dimensions. Now it's purely into beauty, purely into fashion. Am I making some sense? Now it's crossed over in the area of gender. So we have, first of all, we have superficially magnified the male and the female and destroyed their organic beauty and organic power and their organic distinction. And we told them they can jump the fence over into uber men and women. And now once they're uber men and women, we told them they can jump the fence over the idea of being men and women, period. So now we are hybriding. Y'all understand your Bibles. You see that. It's clear, isn't it? And we're moving towards what, what we have said before, zoomorphic transformation. We're moving towards being animals. This is why they don't want to even hold the idea of us being created in the Imago Day. Does that make some sense? Well, the believers are fundamentally by nature weak in spirit in many ways. And, and Paul will talk about that frequently. I just want to take you to two or three verses, maybe four, to underscore this before we go on. I love this. Notice what, um, what this idea of, of weakness uh, underscores in Romans chapter 15. I want to read verse one and two. I'm going to read about four or five verses. Paul uses this term a lot. This is a New Testament term that's prominently Pauline, and it has beautiful, equivocating, modifying flexibility that I want us to capture. We then that are what? That's right, Stanil, ought to bear the infirmities of the what? Beautiful, great imperative. It presupposes that in the kingdom of God, some of us are weak and some of us are strong. Is that right? This is why I said earlier, don't ever overgeneralize. You got to catch yourself. We're not all weak. We're not all weak in the same way. There are some who are strong and there are some who are stronger than others. And we're all strong in different ways. That makes sense, right? But weakness, therefore, is a kind of starting ground for a relationship with God by which he wants to take us from weakness to what? There it is. That makes sense, doesn't it? Sure. We're getting ready to drill, drill down into a little bit. I told you I want you to get the, the uh, equivocating principle. I want you to see the nuanced nature of weakness and strength. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmity of the weak and not to what? Ah, oh, there it is. Hold on to it. There it is. Because this is what Paul is asking us by way of inference, even as I please all men everywhere, right? So if that's really true, verse 33 says that his goal is to please all men everywhere. There's going to be a mechanism for Paul, a methodology for Paul in the context of meeting Christians who are weak, where he knows what to do. Did that make some sense? Did that make some sense, saints? That because his aim is to please... When he runs across a situation where he's dealing with that third category, weak people, he knows what to do. That makes sense, right? Could we therefore say, I just want to put it out there, you can wrestle with me when we get there, that the idea of being pleasing is the idea of knowing your purpose, knowing your capacity, and therefore understanding your targeted objective. Can I, can I say that? To be pleasing means you know your purpose. You can't be pleasing if you don't know what it means to be pleasing, if you don't know how to apply it, if you don't know your target. If you can't identify your target 
for whom you are seeking to what? Please. Then you won't know how to employ whatever gifts you have to result in being pleasing to and with that target, right? Very important. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll fill that in in a moment. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Lord, through Paul. Now I know that if I am quasi strong, my job when I come around weaker Christians is to support them. Is that what it's saying? That's my job. That's my job. I can do an ipso facto. I can, I can hold a syllogistic principle together. I know that if I am this and they are that and I do what I do, the outcome should be somebody should be pleased. Did that come home? All right, we're going to drill down into that in a little bit because I am my, my, my MO, according to Paul, is I should be pleasing all men. Okay, so here comes an assignment. Oh, here's the assignment is weakness. So whatever strength I have, I may just have a small measure more strength than that person. Okay, it's still my obligation if I'm a little bit stronger than them to do what? Edify them. I'm clear on my assignment because my aim is that they might be what? What's the word? Pleased. Please save ultimately. I mean, that Paul, uh, Paul, Paul is arguing that. But what about people that are already saved? See what I'm saying? All right. So but Paul can be speaking in what we call the eschatological sense of saved. Like I am saved. I am being saved. I will be. Right. So I might need somebody to help me all the way through that process. (laughs) Right. Okay, that's all I'm saying. All right. I love that. Look at verse two. I want you to capture verse two. Look at verse two. Verse two says, let every one of us. What? There it is. Do Paul like that term? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Listen to what he says. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to what? There it is. Can I give you one more verse? Look at it. Verse three. Look at it. For even Christ pleased not himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee have what? Now, this is wild because the reproaches is our blaspheming the father. I'm just letting you know now, that's a bad deal. We did. We blasphemed the father. In your unsaved state, you blasphemed God. Did you know that? You spoke against God. You pierced God. You thrust through God. That's the idea of reproaching. It can go deep. But many of us did that. Now, thankfully, what we did not do was blaspheme the Holy Ghost. But I told you last week, God keeps you from that. Didn't I tell you that? He keeps you from that because his, his purpose is to save you. Because a person blaspheming the Holy Ghost, he's done. I told you that, right? He's done. But you and I never, ever blaspheme the third person. That takes a lot of work. You can raise it up in the Q&A if you want to. That's not something you do flippantly. But please, uh, at the fundamental rhetorical level, Irreverent men and women constantly blaspheme God. Oh, God. That's blasphemy. At the rhetorical level of bringing God down to a quip. That's blasphemy. Did y'all hear what I just stated? Therefore, Christians blaspheme God, don't they? Yeah, you see, you don't see serious Muslims doing that. They have a high view of the name of God, don't they? 
Oh, God, you hear it from kids. I go, those silly kids have no idea what they're doing, what they're embarking upon. Because I shared with you the Exodus text concerning the Egyptian uh, woman with the Jewish man who had a child who blasphemed God and they had to stone him. Didn't I share that with you last week? Of course I did. And God was doing with that that situation in the wilderness. The same thing he did with the boy picking up sticks. God said, I ain't having I'm not having that. Two things I'm not having among my people. You're not going to work your salvation out and reject Jesus. And you're not going to blaspheme my name and think that everybody's going to love me while you're doing that. All right, there we go. This is beautiful for even Christ pleased not himself. This is going to help us understand the inversion of pleasing others, right? All right, so let me go to a few more verses because I want to be able to move forward. Notice what it says in as we consider um, weakness, another portion of scripture. This is how Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, where, uh, where, we, um, where we were last week. 1 Corinthians 9, 19, listen to what he says here. He says, for though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant of all that I might do what? Right. So here's your here's your here's your again, another paradoxical axiom. I'm free, but I'm also a servant. So now I'm positioning myself to be pleasing. Did I come home? Right. So some of you guys understand that our axiom of truth, our composite of truth is a person. His name is what? Jesus. And therefore, when Paul says, I'm free, but I'm also a servant, is he not now presenting to us Jesus? 100%. Jesus is the freest human being that ever walked the face of the earth, yet he was the Lord's servant, right? He is the Lord's malach. He is the Lord's um, servant. Uh, The Hebrew term will come up in in a moment, but he is the Lord's slave, he is the slave of the Lord, but he's the freest man on the on the planet as well. And so you and I are called to to be that as well. For though I be free from all men, this is protecting our conscience. Y'all caught that? I'm, men don't get to tell me and I'm a child of God what to be. You can you can you can suggest you can request you can write it on an envelope. You can email me. You can text me, but you can't make me. I am who I am by the grace of God. But in the essence of who I am, I also know I'm here to serve. That's freedom, isn't it? But it's freedom with a purpose. Look at verse uh, 20. Here it is. And unto the Jew, I became a, there it is, that I might gain the Jew to them that are under law as under law, that I might gain them that are under law. Verse 21, there it is. To them that are without the law, without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. This is an exegetical of what it means to be a servant. And then finally here, to the weak, I became as what? Right. Powerful. These are paradoxical uh, sort of uh, phrases of execution. Right. To the Jew, I became a Jew. I I I want you to flesh that out with me. Because remember what he's saying in verse 33? I... Please all men. My my aim is to please all men. So if I come across a Jew, in order for me to be pleasing to a Jew, what must I know about a Jew? Jewishness. Am I making some sense? All right. So I knew we were going to get into the rabbit hole, but you got to go here because everything that we're talking about is what it means to be Christ. Did Christ become all things to all men? 
Is he not the universal mediator of all human beings? He's our model then in this regard. To the weak became I as weak that I might gain them that are weak. I am made what? All things to all men that that I might by all means do what? Right. That's the end game. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. So the idea of weakness is a powerful concept. I want you to see it again over in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 10, 10. Notice what it says in 2 Corinthians 10. This is a accusation raised against Paul. Notice what it says. For his letters, that's Paul's letters, say they are what? Weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is what? And his speech is what? Welcome to a, a facsimile of Jesus in Paul. Welcome to a facsimile of Jesus in Paul. Look at that text again and understand that the words of the Lord are weighty and mighty. But when Jesus came to us in this earth, he came in weakness. And for those who don't know him, his words are contemptible. Did that make some sense? So you see Jesus in Paul, do you not? Right. Really, that's what we're we're called to enter into that composite, ladies and gentlemen, because unless our words also have room for men's contempt, they won't be saved by us. We'll work that through in a little bit, but it's important for you to see another portion of scripture. I want you to see how Paul uses second Corinthians chapter 13 verses one through four. Here it is again. These are paradoxical <clears throat> insights into the idea of weakness. Paradoxical insights into the idea of weakness. Here it is. Verse one. This is the third time I am coming to you, says Paul, in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Let every word be established. Verse two. I told you before and I foretell you as I as if I were present the second time and being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned and to all others that if I come again, I will not. See, he's in his second epistle and he said, I'm I'm coming with a belt next time. Do y'all see that? I'm coming with a belt. Obviously, he was contemptible to somebody in his his epistolary efforts, right? He wrote, he told them how to behave, what to do. And there are brothers who are pushing up against him. And he says, hold on, I'm coming. (laughs) And he was, even as the Lord is coming. So men can rage against Christ all they want. He's coming, isn't he? And, And, you know, between him coming and him arriving is its mercy. This is the time where men get to repent because <laughs> when he shows up with the sword, ain't no conversation. See, this, this is how you exercise fatherly authority. When I came home, mom had already warned everybody, you're going to get a tail whipping. You ain't going to be able to no negotiate, no plea bargains, none of that. When dad come in and just line up, tell the truth and turn around. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Verse three, verse three. Here it is. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me. I love that. Look at here was the contempt of nature of their contemptibleness. We don't see that Paul is speaking for Christ. Because they were blinded to Christ as well as blinded to Paul because they were misinterpreting weakness. Did that make some sense? 
And don't we live in a culture like that today where weakness is 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 made contemptible? We don't see any virtue and weakness in this world. But again, paradoxically, if weakness didn't have a virtue, you and I could not be saved. Look at it. Verse four. For though we for though he was crucified, who is he through what? See, yet he lives by the what? That's the paradoxical truth of weakness. He's talking about his crucifixion. His crucifixion is the epitome of the expression of humility and weakness. And yet it's the source of omnipotent power. Does that make sense? Right. It is the expression of the epitome of weakness in that he humbled himself under the father's hand. But it's also the source and origin of omnipotent power. They both coexist in Christ in his weakness. Notice what Paul says. For we also are what? We also are what? In him. That's what I meant by the paradoxical nature of the proposition weakness. I get that. Do you get that? Right. Maybe, maybe not. So to be weak in Christ is different than just being weak. And, 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 it, and it's not that you and I are um, positionally outside of Christ in our weakness. But when you and I are weak in ourselves, unconscious of our commitment to who he is for us and who we are in him, then our weakness leaves us without the capacity of deriving the strength that he possesses because he's risen again from the dead. Some of my brethren caught this about a week ago, and I'll I'll reiterate this for you. When you and I are walking in our life cognitively or um, rationally or conscientiously, And we are not recognizing that the only way we can bear fruit is to be in him and him and us at the conscious level. I'm not talking about at the uh, positional level. I am in Christ positionally. But what if I'm going about my day or my week and I'm just completely blowing Jesus off? I'm making, I'm, I'm, I'm engaging in decision making. I am making choices. I'm engaging in this, I'm engaging in that. And I'm not even calling upon the Lord to help me. I'm not even aware of the need for him to be my present parakletos, my helper. So I'm walking in my own what? Which is weakness without Christ. Does that make some sense? Right. So it's important to know this, that also on the rhetorical level, you and I have to be careful that we don't Um, don't mess up the rhetoric of scripture and miss the substance of it that's critically important in our walk with God, right? So weakness is an equivocal term. It can be bad if I'm weak in myself, but it can be good and very good if I'm weak in him. Does that make some sense? If my weakness is owned conscientiously by me as part of the necessary relationship with him so that in my weakness, his strength is made manifest. But that's only going to happen if I am conscientious that my weakness is part of the relationship dynamic that I have with him. So I derive strength from him outside of myself and then I can give the credit to whom credit is due. It was God working in me to will and to do of his good pleasure. Right. So if he actually wants me to 
um, benefit from that resource of grace, I know it's also for his glory. If I assume to obtain a goal, achieve a victory, accomplish a feat in my own strength, and he gives me over to do that, I am most likely not going to truly give him the glory for it. I'm going to be inclined to boast in that strength that I assumed was mine. Is that coming home? Right. So this is how Paul is laying it out. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. And I love this verse five. This is what Paul is saying to them. Examine yourselves, whether you be in this same kind of faith that I'm talking about. Prove your own selves. You, you want proof of me that I'm walking with Christ. You better, you better prove your own self that you're walking with him. Right. I mean, because Paul has already argued in chapter 12 that he did the signs of an, of an apostle. He already has argued miracles, raising folk from the dead, killing folk, you know, opening the eyes of the blind. All the apostles had all that power, didn't they? You read the book of Acts. Right. You're going to be blind for a season. That's apostolic power. I, the, 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 in a minute you're about to die and they're going to come and take your carcass and put you in the ground. That's apostolic power. Boy, you don't mess with them apostles. But you'll see Jesus in a hot minute you mess with them. Or hell. Right? This is why people are talking about being an apostle. Leave it alone, ladies and gentlemen. Leave that position alone. No, you're not an apostle. Leave that position alone. Right? Know you, and notice what he says. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be what? Right. Now, this is a great way to close in my thoughts with you, because I want to go into the question. What does it mean to please all men? This is a great interrogative uh, um, imperative by Paul. Examine yourself. That's an imperative. Really turn and put the spotlight on yourself and ask. Since you are assuming and and making the uh, assumption that you're Christian, whether you be in the faith. Because if you are in the faith, certain things will show up in your life, won't they? Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves. I love that. What Paul is saying is, and this is going back to Romans 14, where he says, if you have faith, have it before God for yourself. Y'all remember that? Like, like, you know, you can tell everybody you are a believer. It don't mean that. I told you, don't even tell folks you saved. Don't tell folks you saved. You don't have to tell folks you saved. I'm saved means nothing. Doesn't mean a thing. Just live out the gospel. They'll know you saved. Isn't that right? Right. Just live out the gospel. They'll know you saved. Examine yourself whether you be in the faith. You know, you can go in your own closet. and say, Lord, am I saved? You can do that. I'm telling you right now, Lord, I just, I just told somebody, I'll say, Lord, am I really saved? You can do that now. You can go in the closet and say, Lord, I, can you make that good? I done just ran out there, told all those people, I'm saying, Lord, would you just save me so this thing can be true in me as it is in you? And I'm just saying, help yourself, okay? Know ye not in your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobate. And here's a huge danger in this category. None here have it, but it could occur. Uh, a person can be so deceived that they don't know that they don't know Christ. In that day, many shall say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? And did we not? 
do that. And did we not do the other thing in your name? And he will say unto them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Y'all see that? That's how you hold it in attention. And so this is not something to hang over your head to make you operate in the paralysis of fear. This is something that is meant to drive you immediately to Jesus and keep it real. Like if you if you come to Jesus now, right now, just right where you are and say, Lord, help me avoid reprobation. Because reprobation is a term that means that you no longer have the capacity to put it together again in your reasoning skills, in your cognition. You don't know how to be true to yourself. A reprobate is lost in his or her ability to be truthful to themselves so as to have the possibility of salvation because God desires truth from the inward man. And if if a lie has so taken a hold of you that you are deceived to the core that you can lie to yourself that you know Jesus and you really don't know Jesus, that's a bad self lie. That is the epitome of idolatry to the nth degree of spiritual blindness. Did that make some sense? It's important to know that people can be reprobate. That's Romans chapter one. Pero didomai. So a reprobate is a person that the Bible says is given over to the dark powers and authorities of the satanic system. And they're given over to those authorities at their own will. This is captured in Judas Iscariot. The physical account of Judas walking with Jesus right up to the night that he was crucified. So what we would know about Judas is that he was never saved. Would we know that? We would know that he appeared to be saved. So he probably was telling people that he was saved and he was pretending to be saved. And he may even have engaged in some of the uh, external apostolic ministry manifestations. Certainly Jesus said that could happen. But here now, as we come to the crux of Christ's weakness, he doesn't want to identify with that weakness because he loved the world. So so in rejecting Christ's weakness, he chose demonic strength and went and sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Did he not? Right. And that same night, John 13, Jesus said, get up and go do what you do and do it quickly. And it was clear that that same night Satan entered into him, John 13, right? And he went his way. So we're looking at an example of an individual that came as close as anyone could be to eternal life and was lost because he allowed his own willful passion to drive him in a direction away from the humility that's required to be able to see Jesus as your salvation in his weakness. This is also why I've often said, we're going to get ready to do the q and I need somebody to run the mic. You guys can, whoever I can get to run the mic now, I need somebody to run the mic. Come on, AJ. Come on, Giannis. This is why we use this term, just in case you don't know it. In our church, we, we tell people that the gospel is a sinner's gospel. Okay? It's, it's only for sinners. The gospel is not for righteous people. A righteous person doesn't need the gospel. That was the Jews. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? That's why he came unto his own and his own received him not. 
The world was made by him and the world knew him not. They rejected the only way of salvation because they weren't sinners. The gospel is for sinners. And sinners see the person and work of Christ as making all the sense in the world when they see that they are desperately hell-bound sinners and that they cannot save themselves. Does that make some sense? Right. So when we're dealing with the Jews, they're angry because we tell them that they're sinners and they can't be saved by their works. And when we're dealing with Gentiles, they are blind and given to all kinds of pathological anxieties and depressive outbreaks of all kind of criminal behavior, including anger, because we tell them that they're dead in trespasses and sins. And then from time to time, we get some trouble in our church with weak Christians. Right. Because we Christians do not submit to the spirit in order to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord in a way in which they can own their weakness as a grounds for Christ's strength. Did that make some sense? Right. Because your God in mind says he will always at every time. I don't care if you're saved or unsaved. If you're proud, I'm going to resist you. Did that make some sense? So, so y'all know when the Lord resists us, well, all we ought to do is look for it. It's somewhere around the house. Somewhere around the house. I'm locked out. I can't even get in my daddy's house. What have I done? I have engaged with some kind of pride, some kind of arrogance, and it's inhibiting me from access to the kingdom. That makes sense. Pastor, I'm confused. What? It just don't seem like, it seemed like the Lord resisted me on every hand. Well, we, we, we know why. Right, because he gives grace all the time to the humble. Am I making some sense? But you and I also know this, uh, and, and, and I know it, and, and I think you should know. It is so hard. Like, you cannot muster up humility. Does that make some sense? Like, humility has to, humility has to be a gift given to you. Like God has to liberate you from your prideful, sort of arrogant, staunch position. You know it. And when he does, you feel so good. When you can just walk. Okay, Lord, you know what, Lord? You know what, Lord? You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. All right, let's do this. We're going to take a few questions and we're out of here. Questions, comments? All right, Ms. Jackie. Hi, Pastor Jay. Um, My comment is, your questions, I have to make myself, prove myself, my surety of my walk with Christ. And then I become um, all things to all men, like Paul was saying, to the Jew, the Jew, the Gentile, um, those things. And also I wanted a question about, uh, well, no, this is kind of like a statement. The anger, blindness, and weakness. um, So the Jew is angry because they believe Jesus is not the Messiah. The Gentile is blind because I guess they don't believe God is. The church is weak because they have actually trying to 
assume God's glory, try to take on God's glory through like Judas, a pretense that they are saved, but they're really not. And I don't, they may or may not be aware. So some of them may not be that far as reprobate, but there's that weakness. The weakness, I'm weak in, like I can be weak in Christ. But it's his glory, not my own. It's him doing the work, not me. And when I become weak, which is not humble. So I kind of had two meanings of weakness. Like I got like, there's a weakness in Christ, which is more humbling and meekness. But my own, like my own self-righteousness is... It takes God's glory, and I'm trying to do it for myself or my self-gratification. You're working it out. You're working it out. No, it's okay. You're working it out. I'll try to organize it briefly, because that's what the whole study was about. The whole study was unpacking that, as you guys know. I would say that when we talk about the Jews, we're not being absolutely exclusive. Obviously, the derivative of anger, and you can find this in your Bible, is for everyone at some level, both saved and unsaved. Okay, so your Bible will underscore that. In the house, I have some of my brothers and sisters who are among me right now who have a hard time with their anger. Okay, I'm just letting you know. So anger itself is amoral. That is to say, it is not an immoral quality of itself. It's just when anger is uncontrolled and misdirected, it can be eternally destructive. Did that make some sense? So when we, when we attribute to the Jews anger, it is a pathology that drives them because of their continued resistance against the claims of God that all that Torah was teaching was summed up in the person of Jesus. So they're fueled by a resistance against that proposition. Did that make some sense? Right. That's obvious in the Bible, both Old Testament and New. And here's how you can know, and I'll just drill down into this. This is not Jew bashing. This is just the fact. God set the Jews up to fail so that they could find their redemption in Christ. And, And he did it by prophetically giving them the ministry of slaughtering lambs, goats, and bulls. So think about the act of slaughtering an innocent lamb, an innocent goat, an innocent bull. Did y'all hear what I just stated? That's a violent act. That's a violent act. And that violent act was to infer to the Jew that he is a sinner. Did he come home? Sacrifices are not cute things. And every time the Jew offered a sacrifice... He was to see himself engaging in the paradox of being angry with God, but needing God to save him from his anger. Did that make some sense? And they would be the privileged people to show the whole world that we are just like the Jews by nature. Does that make some sense, you guys? Right. There's nothing cute about slaughtering a lamb. You're supposed to have all kinds of mixed emotions when you do it. The lamb didn't sin, you did. 
And you slayed the lamb. And if that lamb points to Jesus, guess what? The Jews slayed Jesus. That's explicit language. I shouldn't go down this rabbit trail. I really shouldn't. But my country is just all jacked up in its constant reverse psychology, always wanting to uh, mess with your head and make you not say things that are obvious and explicit. Like this constant, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. Virtually everything your government tells you is a conspiracy theory is the truth. And you, and you need to learn how to overcome because they lied to you. Okay, you, you're going to have to learn how to overcome. Again, this is what it means to have, have Christ have lordship over your conscience so you can be free to think reasonably and rationally, even if it's not popular with people. Okay. I mean, for the longest, our Jewish brethren way up in the high places of our government is telling all the media to tell everybody, don't say anything about anything bad about Jews. Stop it. Jews are sinners just like Gentiles. And it's Jewish brethren that wrote about it. Okay, so um, the anger thing is not exclusive to our Jewish brethren, but they would be angry because the very Messiah that they wanted to lie about in a conspiracy, they, they killed him. We don't know where he is. They took his body and we can't find it to this day. That's in your Bible. That's a conspiracy. It's a lie. That same Jesus has become prominent all over the world now, as he said he would. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. Am I making some sense? So if I were in that position and predicament where I'm trying to snuff out that truth, and that truth pops up everywhere I go, I'd be angry too. That makes sense, right? All right, so I'm sympathetic with my Jewish brethren because I know what it means to be angry. But theirs is peculiar to Jesus. Secondly, concerning blindness as the Gentiles. The Jews are blind too. That's what Jesus meant in 15, John, uh, Matthew 15, four, uh, four, 14, when he says, let the blind lead the blind. Paul knew that when Paul persecuted the church and Jesus met him on the Damascus road, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you what? Persecuting me. And God blinded him for three days to show him that he was a blind leader of the blind. Then he opened his eyes. So you got anger and blindness and weakness. There's no doubt, no doubt about it. We, we are all weak in the sense that apart from Christ, we can do nothing, whether Jew or Gentile. Y'all know that. So, yeah, we've been te- we were talking about the paradoxical nature of weakness. If you know you're weak, then you have a remedy. Strength is found in God. But that requires grace. There's a kind of strength that's needed to know your weakness in order to draw strength from God who will give it to you. We believe in paradoxical equivocating uh, propositions. We're not monoconceptual in our understanding of words. Good. Next question. Uh, somebody has the mic. Who has the mic? You've got to have, do you have the mic, sis? Do you, she raising her hand. All right. Whoever has the mic got to start talking. Okay. Um, I'm almost afraid to ask the you this. The mic is going down as you talk. I'm almost afraid to ask you this question. Well, you can't be afraid of me. I'm not your Lord. Okay. I'm just your friend. Now, did so, we just, did we learn that tonight? Don't let nobody run up in your conscience. Not even PJ. Listen, let me, let me help her. My grandchildren aren't even afraid of me. That'll come home in a minute. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, so a large number of my family members are in Tel Aviv, Israel, 
or some are here in the U.S., but they're from Tel Aviv. They are really Jews. And so my question is... To be from Tel Aviv does not mean you're really Jews. No, I'm, I'm, I'm just giving the fact that that's part of their culture, okay. that's their religion. This is the life they live and exercise. Okay. Okay. So am I off by... When I pray for my family, I'm always praying for God to save certain people, right? And I, and I know God can do all things. It's according to his will. Am I, am I being unproductive by asking God to save th- those Jewish members? What do you mean? I, I, mean don't, I, don't, get, I don't get your reasoning. It, would it be pleasing to God to not pray that God would save Jewish mothers. I'm working with her because I'm, I'm trying to see where her disconnect is. Would it be pleasing to God for you to pray for God to save Jewish mothers? I'm, I'm talking to her. Talk to me, sis. You said, would it be pleasing? Would it be pleasing to God for you to pray for those Jewish mothers to be saved? Yes. Let's back up. Would it be pleasing to God for you to pray for any Jewish mother to be saved? Sure. Okay. Would it be pleasing God for you to pray for particular Jewish mothers that you know to be saved? I guess the problem is me. In my head, thinking they're so entrenched in their religious beliefs and rituals and customs that, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, that's completely irrelevant. Yeah, that's, that's you. You want to overcome that. I'll give you my brother again. His name is Saul of Tarsus. He happens to be the Apostle Paul. He said in Romans chapter 9, I could wish I myself to be a curse from Christ that my brethren in the flesh might be saved. That's Romans 9, 2 and 3. Did y'all hear that? And he, he, he sets out to please all men. Is that not Christocentric? I could wish myself a curse from Christ if my brethren in the flesh could be saved. I think that's a prayer. Of course it is. See what I'm saying, sis? All right. So you're going to learn something on Sunday about why that, there was an ambivalence in your mind on that. Because that, that one's a simple answer. Who has the mic? Uh, my sister right here. How you doing, girl? Very fine, thank you. How are you, PJ? My my beautiful Nigerian sister. How you doing? No, 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 sir. Kenya. Kenya. Ooh. Let me move it back over. East Africa in the room. That's East African. I got it. Yeah. Totally different attitude. The opposite. I know. It's really true. Opposite. Go on. So, for we also are weak in him, but we... But we live with him by the power of God to it. Okay. So before I know I'm weak, then does that mean there's a time in life where I was strong? And then I know I'm weak in him? Or are we weak in him naturally? Or how do you get to that point that now I am weak? Right. It's pretty good. So again, when we're dealing with the concept of weakness, and I was talking about the paradoxical nature of it. When we talk about paradoxes, we're talking about tensions of how to reconcile seemingly two opposite things. And in this context of weakness, we're going to do it two ways. The term weak and strong. That's one way. Like if I am strong in myself, then I am not weak. 
right? In the sense that I am perceiving myself strong. I can't perceive myself strong and perceive myself weak at the same time in the same way. So that's kind of like what you're asking. In my unsaved state, I will presuppose that I'm strong and then God has to humble me. It's what he did to Paul on the Damascus road, by the way, knocked him all the way down. And then he discovered his what? His weakness. And as a weakness then prepared him for the strength of Christ, did it not? God resisted the proud. He caught Paul, knocked him down. And Paul now discovered his weakness and that weakness availed him to the supply of grace that came through Christ. That's one side. That's one side. Yeah. Going, going back to the other side, because everybody needs to hear this because you're wrestling with a with a uh, fairly complex system. Mm-hmm. So hold on. OK. We're also weak in ourselves, even as Christians. Cognitively and non-cognitively, because our if we're saved, it was weakness that put us in the salvific context. We're only saved because we're weak. He does not save the strong in that sense. But what if in my saved state, I am not maintaining consciousness that my strength is found in my weakness. weakness. So at that point, I'm operating in the carnality of my own independence. And we know that as brethren. Do we not know that as brethren? And I am divorcing myself from the benefits that come from the strength of Christ because he's not going to be strong and I'm going to be strong at the same time. He's not going to be strong in himself and me strong in myself. And we both are walking in agreement. That is not agreement. Agreement is for him to be strong and for me to be weak. And therefore, I am strong in his strength because of his prior weakness, his weakness on the cross. That avails me to his strength. You guys are not getting lost on that. Y'all capturing that is really it's really important to understand that equivocating dynamic of weak in myself, weak in Christ. Strong in Christ, strong in myself. I have to be careful to watch when I am imperceptibly or uh, unwittingly disassociating myself from the strength of Christ. Okay, and we can do that in our pride and in our foolishness. And when we do, we will bump our head significantly enough to be reminded your safety is in your weakness. Perfect. Having found myself that now I'm weak and in my weakness is his strength made perfect in me. Now I have this faith that is building up, right? Yes. So out of this faith, it's operating through the power of God. So is that the resurrection power? Yes. Absolutely. That's another sermon, girl. That's another. All of y'all are only operating out of resurrection power. Okay. Did that make some sense? Right. That, that's so that's what Paul meant in that verse. Right. We live by the power of God, by the resurrection power of God. In fact, that's an inexhaustible power. It is qualitative in that that's where Christ gets his glory. If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. His resurrection demands that we live. What that also means is you can never die because his resurrection power. Does that make some sense? All right. So very good. Thank you. I love that. Right here. First Um, of all, I'll start with my sister. Go on, Sandra. um, Okay. This has to do with the Jews and the Gentiles. I forgot my question. It's okay. It'll come back. So. Oh, did it come back? uh, Yeah, I think so. (laughs) 
Um, it's pulling up to the station right now. So, so God used the Gentiles. Uh-huh. But he separated Gentiles from... No, he, he used the Jews, but he separated them from the Gentiles at the beginning. Is that right? You but, tell me, girl. You put, you're formulating the question. Okay, I need help. I didn't put all my words down. Okay. It was just interesting to me on how she was, the sister back there was talking about the Jews and how you brought it in more. I'm thinking, wait, so God used the Jews. He did. He named the Jews first. Yeah. And then, um, then the Gentiles, who, are, who is me, us, came in. And I'm weak, but I have Christ, so, yeah. Can you? Mm. You want me to help you with that? Yes, please. Okay, good. Yeah. All right, so the train going out the station, we're just going to make a trip from West Oakland to San Jose, okay? We're coming from West Oakland. We're coming from downtown Oakland. Y'all know where the train station is, downtown Oakland? How many of y'all know where the train station is, downtown? So we're going to San Jose right quick. So we're moving out of the station, headed to San Jose. Gentiles are used by God from the beginning. That's your Bible. Adam's a Gentile. Enoch's a Gentile. Methuselah's a Gentile, okay? Noah's a Gentile. Abraham's a Gentile. From Genesis to Genesis chapter 12, God's using Gentiles. Jewish thing ain't even going on. Y'all got that? Right. The Jewish thing only comes on once God gives a promise to Abraham that he would have a seed. Now, that, that's going to be a Jewish thing that takes on a nationalistic identity because it needs to protect God's seed, which is Jesus. Did that make some sense? So from Genesis all the way, from Genesis 1 all the way up to Genesis 12, it's all Gentiles. Abraham's a Gentile. Okay, did y'all get that? God called him in his Gentile state. Isaac and Jacob, they're all now circumcised Jews. They actually were Hebrews and really didn't come into Judaism until a formal state was established under Moses and they became the covenant people. And so they took on a national identity as the Jews and they continued on until the coming of Jesus. That was their ultimate purpose, as Paul said. They were a conduit, conduit for the coming of Jesus. When Jesus came and died, the Jewish people now, they still exist. But their role of bringing the Messiah in, Hashim, he comes into being. Now he's the savior of the world. The Jews no longer have the external kingdom manifestation in the gospel sense. The church does. Now what is the church? It's Jew and Gentile. It's Jew and Gentile. So whereas the Jews drew us in through Moses, we draw them in through Jesus. Did that make some sense? That's Paul's theology. Gentile, Jew, Gentile, Jew. Gentile, Jew. Gentile up to Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jew. Jew up to Jesus. Now the apostles as Jews were used to bring the Gentiles in. And the Gentiles now as the church of God are bringing the Jews in. So there is a reciprocating dynamic of men and women being brought into the kingdom, whether Jew or Gentile, and they are called, according to our verse, the church of the living God. Right? Did that make some sense, you guys? All right, good. I hope that helps. My sister, you got the mic. Both of y'all can ask your questions. Go ahead on, sis. Um, I was actually still kind of struggling with the uh, concept of being pleasing to all. Mm-hmm. Um, because I know that you, like, I mean, in my infant Christian mind, I'm like, you can't literally please at all, literally. Because it's just that. a certain point yeah. you get to, you, you know that you can't please everybody. So Unless. Um, okay. 
we stop at the proposition please and understand it properly. So I'm glad my little sister brought it up because I didn't get a chance to explain it as Paul laid it out. You know that we didn't get a chance to explain it. I simply articulated when he says in verse 33, even as I uh, please all men, uh, verse 33, even as I please all men and all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. That expression is the idea of him recognizing these three categories that we have just been dealing with, Jews, Gentiles, and the church of God. Paul is becoming whatever he needs to be in order that those three categories ultimately end up. Now, I want you to hear what I'm about to say in agreement with Paul. Okay, so the word for please there, okay, that that concept means to bring into agreement with you. Stay with me. Right. So if you and I are taking the idea of pleasing in a kind of secular context of making people happy, then, of course, that's absolutely insane in that regard. But if pleasing in this context of pleasing, which is uh the idea to bring someone into agreement with you. It actually is what is called a spiritual endeavor. Oresco is the uh, Greek term, and it means to negotiate with someone, engage someone to the point where that someone now is walking in agreement with you. Did that make some sense? Right. So, so get that. They have a need and you are pursuing that need. And somehow God allows you to meet that need. They are now in agreement with you. Okay. So now what I have done is I've taken some, I've taken out any kind of assumed sort of emotional uh, disposition of personal gratification because Gentiles, we love to get emotional. Pleasure in that sense is not what God's talking about. He's talking about men being pleased in the sense that when they actually negotiate or interact with Paul, he's gifted enough to bring them to understand what they need and they acquiesce to it and they come into agreement with him. Right. That's the idea of even what Christ is to the father. Right. This is my beloved son in whom I am fully agreement. I fully agree with him. He fully agrees with me. That therefore also is going to speak to a process, is it not? So you and I will start off with men that and women that don't agree with us. But if God uses us across the patience and wisdom and humility of that assignment, they may very well begin to agree with us. If they come into agreement with us, what that means is we actually have identified their problem and we have helped them with their problem to the point that they are glad that they met us. Did that come home, ladies and gentlemen? Right. And, and, and certainly Paul says his ultimate goal is that they be what? Saved. Right. So unsaved people will naturally be in disagreement with us because they're in disagreement with God. That's Romans 8, 6. Right. The carnal mind is enmity against God. Right. So what kind of wisdom do I need to have to be able to engage in assignment where someone is not only uh, in disagreement with me, they're in disagreement with God. 
But are we not called to the angry? Are we not called to the blind? Are we not called to the weak in that sense? Of course we are. Paul was in disagreement with the apostles and persecuted them until the Holy Spirit continued to goad him. Remember, Saul, Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And at some point, he was in agreement with apostolic doctrine, was he not? And he turned around and did the same thing. So that's the idea of pleasing means. And you guys can work that through yourself. I don't want you to over analyze it. But when you are called to engage in an assignment with someone, the goal is to come into agreement. Right. Agree with your adversaries. Right. Get them to agree with you. Persuade them. Help them to comprehend their need. Or and that might not be in words. That might just be in overtures of love. That might be in just gifts that you give. You may set them up. They may be halfway there already. Am I making some sense? And then God allows them to collapse into an epiphany and revelation of who Jesus is ah, through you. All right. A couple more. We're out of here. OK, the question um, that you had just asked with her as far as pleasing um, all men, what came to my mind was um, I am my brother's keeper. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Here's another way to put it, too, if you guys want to kind of reduce it down. So and I'm going to talk about this on Sunday through a, a, uh, a small little portion in the book of numbers that I think we'll enjoy because we're kind of practicing it now. I've told you this before, and I'll lay this out for you. Uh, in, Jewish, uh, in Jewish literature, Torah has a mishpat, or what is called a body of commandments, that constitutes 613 imperatives, okay? I'm going to talk about that on Sunday. I'll show you what I mean. I, I believe it's like, you know, 10 times more, but they have what are called officially 613 commandments. Y'all keeping up with me? Right. We know explicitly those 1600, uh, 16, 613 commandments are summed up in the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words I told you about. So ten, the Ten Words of God, the Ten Saints of God that we call the Ten Commandments, they are summed up in that. But they're, and so they're reduced from 613 to 10. But then I told you that they're also reduced from 10 to 2. Didn't I tell you that? And I told you that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. That's vertical, horizontal. Y'all got that? Y'all got that? And then those two are reduced down to one commandment. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Because Christ is the sum and substance of all of God's commandments. Did that make some sense? Yes. Right. And so what we're doing is we're recognizing the idea of being pleasing to all men as loving God and loving your neighbor. That came home, right? Just wanted to bring it to you so that you didn't have this idea of loving, pleasing all men in the abstract. Of course, if I love God and I'm walking in the humility of, of joy and fellowship with him to the best of my ability, I'm going to be available to bring men into agreement. Right. That's our goal. That's our goal. Now, listen. That phrase, all men, is not what is meant all men per capita. All kinds of men. Right. Like Jesus is the savior of all men, but he's not the savior of absolutely every human being on the planet or else there would be no hell. He's the savior of all kinds of men. He's the savior of anyone who will come to him by faith. 
He's the savior of his elect. He's the savior of his sheep. He's the savior of his people. He's the savior of his church. He's the savior of his bride. Does that make sense? Right. So it's important to make sure we understand that. One more question. We're done. Alisa, uh, uh, is it a question? Well, it's a question. It seems like we when we're find out if it's a question. We're in here and this is all great. We're hearing all this stuff and it's really moving. And then you go out there and then you fail miserably. Is it better just, I mean, I, I hit every point. I like, was a feminist. I was I, just this last week with the interaction. And is it better just not to say anything at all? No, no, no. I love that. That's, I'm glad she gave that for the last question. I love it. Isn't that a great last question? Given the class we had today. Given the class we had today, isn't that a great last question? Because we could deconstruct her event. But we could also, yeah, this is the last one, so bring it up. We could easily say, and we know this from experience, I think. We've had bad days, have we not, saints? Like, I had days where I'm like, I just want to go to bed. Because <laughs> I want tomorrow to come so today can just be over with, Right? I understand why depression leads people to go to bed. Because, uh, you know, every day is a new day. And we get to be liberated from yesterday or even today. You got to know that. Right. So everything that we talked about today is for you. It's for her, is it not? Right. Because failure in that sense is good, is it not? Right. Because what she gets to do is go, oh, that's where I messed up at. I was operating in my own strength. I was disconnected from my strength in Christ because I wasn't conscious of that necessary weakness that would defer to Christ as the strength that would be operating in me. It is a counterintuitive uh, function of faith to be cognitive of the need for Christ to actually be with you in a conversation with someone. And remember, you're still a baby, too. So you're going to have days where you wake up and just are so. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> no. Yeah, no, I don't think that word's in the Bible, but. Oh, yes, it is. Dumb sheep. Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> we will. weak, huh? Carnal. Right. Carnal. Right. But see, remember, weak people are saved people. Right. We people are saved people. And so the thing that you want to do is say, Lord, remember the word unto your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort and my affliction because your word gives me life. It's going to it's going to raise me up again. Watch tomorrow. Uh, Elisa will come in on Sunday and say, I had the most amazing day Saturday. I mean, the Holy Spirit was with me. That's how he is with us, is he not? All right, y'all join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your mercy and your goodness. Thank you for an opportunity to look into your word. We certainly want to be able to be pleasing to you, to your son, to the spirit. We want to agree with you and uh, make us the kind of men and women that we can bring others into agreement with us about you and about how sufficient you are in your grace in our life. As we go now, give us traveling mercies. Uh, grant us uh, a joyful, refreshing day tomorrow and then prepare us to worship you on Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.